Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Ryan Holiday, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. It's been a long time. Yeah, and you know, Ryan, last time you were on the show, um, you were you had just finished the book, um, "The Obstacles the Way" about stoicism, and we spent our time talking about stoicism and how important it is in life and daily life and so on. But I want to talk in this podcast about the amazing success of Ryan Holiday and how you've achieved so much in basically so little time. So, are you are you cool with that? Well, sure. I, I don't know if I would categorize it like that, but uh, I'm I'm happy to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, okay. Let's. How would you categorize uh, your successes and failures? Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. I'm I'm obviously young. I'm I'm 27, but like I remember when when so when I was 19, I'd started working at Hollywood. I, I was working at this at RKO, the movie studio. I was working for this this um this producer there, and he he was very young, and I was like, oh, like you know, what is it like to be like so young and successful? And he was like, well, when I was like 25, it was like crazy. I had this like cool job and, and all my friends looked up to me. And he's like, now I'm 27 and I still have the same job. And my friends who were in medical school are now graduating or my other friends are starting to get their act together. And it's like, he was, he was basically saying that everyone was starting to catch up. And I sort of feel a little bit like that. You know, like when I, when I wrote my first book and I was 25, it was like, I wrote a book and I'm 25. Now I'm 27. Um, I'm I'm still writing books. It, it, there's like some diminishing returns. So it, it's feeling more normal, I guess, is what I would say. Well, I just feel like I'm a person who works hard and has had some success. I don't feel like I'm some prodigy or whatever. Well, but let's 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 reel it back, okay? So age 19, um, you're going to UC Riverside, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you dropped out of school and started doing what? Yeah, so I, I was working for for two authors, Tucker Max and Robert Green. How did you how did you first get in touch with them? How did you impress them? Why like Robert Green and Tucker both they're they're both geniuses, but like Robert Green is like the smartest man in the world. So how did he kind of like reach out and pull you into his fold? Yeah, this is all very funny. So I literally just got off the phone with Robert like one minute ago. And Tell then, him I say hi next time you talk to him. I will. And then, so last weekend, I was in Riverside. I was giving a talk at, like, City Hall. And so I've been thinking a lot about all of this. So this is very raw and real for me. So um, when I was at Riverside, I was writing for the college newspaper. And I'd been a fan of Tucker's writing when I was in high school. And I thought, if I write an article about this person and I send it to him, maybe he'll like it. And then after, I could do an interview with him. So that's how I met Tucker, and we had a convers we we had a series of like email conversations. He would respond to my emails. Um, he would he would give me advice, and I ended up being his intern for the summer. I I moved to L.A. I lived on his floor, and he was he had created a website for Robert because this is right when blogging was sort of coming out, and he he was managing Robert's blog, and I was doing work on it. And as sort of a payment for my services, I got to go out to lunch with the two of them. And that's when I met Robert. 
Okay, so so A, why was it's such an odd connect the dots? Like it's totally why, random. Why was Tucker Max doing Robert Greene's website? Like well, why actually, why did Robert reach out to Tucker Max to do his website? So they had mutual friends, but it was as as you know, Tucker is very entrepreneurial. He was he was trying to create a media company and he had a media company back then that was that was helping other writers be successful online and then either, you know, sell those ideas as books or TV properties or other things. So that was, that was what he was pursuing then. And he represented, uh, you know, uh, Robert and like a handful of other like really interesting writers. And Robert was like the most famous out of anyone he was working with. So, so I, I'm, I get a couple of things out of this. One is, the way you met Tucker was not by calling him up and saying, hey, I really look up to you. Can I have coffee with you for five minutes? You sure. actually offered something of serious value to him, and that opened up the dialogue. Like, he recognized the value, and it opened up the dialogue that you started with him. So well, that- not only – yeah, not only that, but, like, it, I wrote the article first without needing anything from him. So sometimes, like, people don't even realize that, like, even giving something to a successful, busy person is costly. In this case, I wrote an article that I worked really hard on that he read and was then impressed by, and then I did an interview with him, or then we talked about more stuff. So it was like, I did this thing that didn't involve him, and then the final product he looked at and liked. Yeah, and it sort of reminds me of um, Adam Grant's notion of, you know, everybody's uh, some mixture of giver, taker, or matcher. And even being a matcher is costly if your value is not as high as the value of the other person, at least at that moment in time. And so you have to be totally a giver if you're going to impress the people or get in touch with the people you're trying to get in touch with. Yeah. No, No expectation back. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like uh, the the sort of free work strategy. It makes sense. But, like, I get a lot of people that email me and they say, like, I want to work for you for free. What can I do? I I usually don't even answer those because for me to train this person to do something for me is not free for me. I would rather pay someone who's te- who, who I know and can trust um, and not have to worry about things being you know, not good. So it was, it was a very fortuitous situation, right timing, right place. And it was, it was a very contained and easy for that connection to start. Well, you know, it reminds me of, um, so Bobby Fischer used to be the world chess champion. And, um, at at that level, uh, you know, when you're fighting a match for the world chess championship, you bring a second along with you, someone who, uh, helps you, you know, train and who stays up all night analyzing positions and so on. So everybody at that level had a second they would bring with them. Yeah. And anybody would have loved to, any of the top 10 players in the world would have loved to have been Bobby Fischer's number two at the world chess championship. But Bobby Fischer would say, I'm not, I'm never going to use a second. And people would say to him, why not? And he and Bobby Fischer's like, if I'm in the middle of the World Chess Championship, I don't also want to be giving chess lessons. No, that that's a great point. Although, like, I'm very lucky because Tucker allowed me to do that. I mean, I met Tim Ferriss because Tucker took me to South by Southwest to, like, help him with stuff. He was giving a talk, and I was just supposed to be there and meet people and handle, like, stuff for him. And that's how I met Tim, and I ended up, you know, helping Tim with his with the four hour work week a little bit, which was coming out like two months later. So it, it's right. You've got to reduce the cost of those free lessons as much as humanly possible. So, so the other thing I get out of this is that people, you know, nobody is working in isolation. So Tucker Max is is a great writer. He's been on this podcast three times now, uh, but. But you see, through his contacts with you, Robert Greene, Tim Ferriss, it's like this whole group of people kind of grow up together in a scene. Even if they write about completely different things, they're still kind of providing support for each other, working with each other. Like, I've never, you know, actually seen Tucker or Tim help each other with anything, but I know that they talk regularly and that they do stuff together and that they're part of the same scene, as are you and Robert Greene and so on. 
No, that's that's one of my favorite articles that you've ever written. I, I think that makes total sense. I mean, you see it in rap, right? You have Dr. Dre, Eminem, 50 Cent. Yes. These are like sort of three peers who work together, who helped each other. And there's like a little bit of one discovers the other, and then then they become peers with each other. I think I think that's how it works. And and you want to have your own version of that as as much as possible. So, and the the other thing is, I remember when Tim wrote about meeting Tucker, he did a lot of research on Tucker. So rather than talk about Tucker's books or anything, he made some comment about uh, mixed martial arts to Tucker. And so yeah. he was able to engage Tucker on some commonality that, that, that was outside of the realm of where, uh, you know, either of them, you know, were either famous or were to become famous. Yeah, totally. And so, I remember Tim uh, Tim clearly had sort of planned this all out because um, so like we became friends and he he'd gotten us to like I was working on on Tucker's stuff so it was like we were gonna post a, a you know on the message board about it we were gonna promote the book we we sort of thought we were the ones that he was coming to for help and so it was this sort of like oh sure like we'd be happy to help how can we help blah 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 and then sort of the day the book came out like. 50 other people we knew had done the same thing. And like Tim had very expertly sort of lined up all these things independently. And that's why it really blew up at the same time. But he, he was able to develop individual personal connections with all those people. Yeah. And, you know, I think I noticed uh, now my book, Choose Yourself, didn't have the huge success of the four hour work week, but I applied a similar strategy. I kind of hit all the podcasts at the same time and all the conferences at the same time. And that's basically replaced the book tour, you know, the podcast tour. Yeah. I think Tim calls it a, the surround sound effect. I I sort of see it as an artillery barrage. It's like to, to make an impact, you've got to be everywhere all at once. And the way that in the mainstream media, that was possible by, you know, doing morning show, late night show, radio, and newspaper. Now it's like you've got to be on 40 podcasts at the same time. Right, right. So, so you know, so then, okay, you're, you're having lunch with Robert Greene. Yeah. And what happens next? Because there's many more dots here that are going to be yeah. connected. Yeah, sorry. So Robert is, uh, at that time, writing a book with 50 cents. Um, and... He had not had any luck with research assistance. So he was complaining at the lunch about how he was having trouble researching or trouble with his staff for the book. And so I was like, basically had to restrain myself from like jumping across the table to like beg for this job. And I ended up, uh, so I ended up asking for it. I was like, I'll work for free. I'll do whatever it takes. And he was like, look, nobody works for me for free. I'll give you a, you know, a trial thing. If it does well, um, like, uh, I would love to have you. Um, and so I ended up two, two crazy things happened. So I'd already gotten an offer to drop out of college and sort of around that time that I was thinking about. What do you so mean offer to drop out of college? So <laughs> there's so many details. I feel like I'm going to bore people. So I, I was working at, I was working for this in Hollywood for these two, uh, producers and they they had they had said, "Why are you going back to college? Why wouldn't you just work for us?" And what were they producing? Like uh, a movie? I would know. No, so they produce like just tons of movies. They're, it's a talent management production company. It was it's called the Collective. Uh, they just signed. You know, I I worked on them when they were signing Lincoln Park, um, a bunch of other huge bands. You know, they worked on movies, comedians. Uh, they ended up. You know, now they have a big YouTube studio. It's it's a it's a pretty big company. So the producer I was working for, his name's Aaron Ray, um, and uh, so he was he was trying to convince me not to drop out of, or to drop out of college and work for him. And then so this this thing from Robert happened, and so I, that sealed it for me. Although I didn't tell Robert that's what I was doing because I thought it would like scare him off. And then the other detail is. I was so nervous that when I gave Robert my phone number, I wrote it down wrong. And um, he called me like the next day. And so other people answered the phone, like people who are not me. And they pretended to be me. But like, they sorry, they pretended to be they were friends of mine and that I was injured in the hospital. And they strung him along for like a week pretending that <laughs> oh my I was God. in the hospital. So this life-changing opportunity, like I would not be here right now, I would not be a writer if I hadn't been Robert's research assistant, 
almost didn't happen because I wrote down my phone number wrong and these fucking assholes pretended they were me on the phone. Oh my God. Did you ever track them down? Uh, no, I never did. And so, but Robert, some Robert ended up calling Robert figured out what's going on. He called Tucker and got my actual phone number. And then, um, thankfully I got the, I got the job. And okay. So then, so you're, so Robert Green. First off, just for anybody who doesn't know who he is, he's been on this podcast also. He's written amazing books. The 48 Laws of Power is his most popular. I love Mastery. I love the one on war, seduction. I like the one with the 50th law, the one on 50 cents. So he's just an amazing writer. And what you really get from his books is he does an enormous amount of research. So like when he's talking about you know, all his stuff about Napoleon. Was that you doing research on Napoleon? Well, I only worked on the 50th law. So like, obviously I I didn't work on his other more famous book, his earlier famous books. The first one I worked on was the 50th law, but he would say, okay, I really want a story about a great boxer for chapter two, which is going to be about X. Or he would say like, he took uh, the first time I, I went over to his, his house and he was like, Here's all the stack of books that I want to read. Here's all the books that I don't want to read that might have something in them. That's your job. And so I would read all these books, you know, the ones that he thought weren't going to be very good. And my job was to try to see if to save him time. Or later he would say, like, yeah, like, I think there's a story about Cornelius Vanderbilt. I'd like to include him him in here. And so there's a story in uh, the 50th law about Cornelius Vanderbilt that I I was able to sort of research the bones about, then I would provide the, the, I would say like, these are the pages you would want to consult. You know, here's a couple sources. Here's an article. Here's all the things you would need. And then Robert would see if that, you know, met his standards, read all the material himself and then craft the story. That is, that is awesome. You know, and I say that not from the point of view of the listener, but from my point of view, like I'm, in the market right now for a researcher and you've just you've just defined my um uh job description for that so that is good to know yeah and i mean it was it was far and away my favorite job of all time i still kind like he was talking to me because i read this book about howard hughes that i really loved recently which one empire uh no um what where is it let me see is is that the the big 600 page one let me see. Uh, I, I have it right here. I read on the Kindle, so I don't know how many pages. No, no, it's it's Howard Hughes' his Life and Madness. Um, so I I read this book, and and it's it's a very it's like a critical look at how messed up Howard Hughes was. Uh, like we think of him as this genius, but in in reality, it, he was deranged and pro- perhaps one of the worst businessmen of all time. Let me ask um, you a question because I've had an and 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 I want to get back to the story. Yeah. But I had a discussion just two days ago with someone about this. I know his father invented the drill bit that w- then created yeah. Hughes Tool Company. But didn't he was didn't Howard Hughes uh, the you know the, the the Howard Hughes we know didn't he also invent enough uh, additions or tweaks to the drill bit that he could claim it as his own that he did something? Absolutely not. So Howard Hughes' father invented the invented this drill bit. He may have actually stolen it or bought it from someone else. He starts this company. It's very profitable. He drops dead of a heart attack at like 50. His 17-year-old son inherits two-thirds of the company. Howard Hughes' single greatest business decision was borrowing against his shares to buy out his uncle and grandparents um, to 100% control the tool company. And then after doing so, essentially never touched it again other than the subsidiaries that he built around it, some of which were very profitable and run by other people, others which were enormous money holes where he spent the vast majority of his time uh, burning more cash than most people will ever see in their lifetime. His his movie studios, well, RKO, didn't he own RKO for a while? Yeah, he bought RKO and then uh, lost about $20 million on it over seven years. And then, of course... Selling- Selling it at a huge loss. TWA, TWA, he bought um, and then uh, treated it as his private plaything, and then was sued by the shareholders for mismanagement, and then forced to sell it. 
And when he was forced to sell it, it was the single uh, biggest amount of money that he ever made in his career. And it was against his, uh, it was after years of effort to prevent that from happening. Like he desperately did not want to sell the shares, not because they were valuable, but because he was addicted to the control of the company. Hmm. So, so just yesterday, I guess you were talking to Robert Green about Howard Hughes. Yeah. So, so I read this book about Howard Hughes and I know what Robert is working on now. And I was like, Robert, like you have to read this book. Like I think I was like doing the job for free, basically. That's so funny. Well, that again, I, I, I want to point it out. You doing a job for free seems to be a, uh, a kind of channel for your success. Well, I mean, I, I don't see it as free because I feel like I'm deeply indebted to this man who taught me the craft that I love that has been an incredibly sort of patient, like mentor and teacher to me and has, you know, been incredibly generous too, in the sense that like, when it was time for me to write my first book, he was like, let me introduce you to my agent. Let me, um, you know, let me read your book. He's been, he's been a huge supporter of me. Like, I think, you know, typically, like Robert talks about this in Mastery, like, um, you know, usually there, and he, I mean, he talks about this in the 48 Laws of Power, where uh, the per, you apprentice under someone, and then usually they become very jealous and bitter and guarded, um, and and somewhat, like, resent or dislike the success, any success that their former pupil might have. Robert has been so amazingly supportive of me in that sense that I would... I would do anything for him. I think I think that's because he's been so aware of so many mentor mentee stories like that. I mean, I would have to say probably in my case every mentor I've ever had eventually ended up disliking me and it's it's yeah. been very unpleasant. Yeah, no, it's it's incredibly unpleasant. I I've, I've been through that myself and I mean, he, there's that quote in Mastery where he says to the master goes the knife. Um you end up killing your your former uh your former mentor, which is sad and deeply unpleasant. It's so it's it's funny we're talking about this because I actually, you know, obviously I read Mastery before I interviewed him, which was over a year ago. But I just reread it again um, in the past week or so. It's uh, oh. it's such an excellent book. So oh, amazing. Yeah, I look forward to whatever whatever he does next. But so now we're going to connect the dots further because yeah. I know Robert Green then interviewed introduced you to American Apparel where you became the director of marketing at like the age of 20 or something. Yeah, so so Robert was on the board of American Apparel um, when it went public. He was an advisor to Dove Charney, who's the CEO. And uh, I came in as to help Dove with some like marketing and strategy issues that he was having. I uh, didn't have a formal position or anything. He just said like, I, he gave me a tour of the factory one day and he was like, Ryan, you know, this is a, this is a billion dollar company. Um, I think you should work for me. And I said, I think so too. And I ended up working there and, and I, there was no marketing department. Everything was all scattered. So I, I helped him build a marketing department, which I eventually then ran. Um, and then to sort of go to what we were just talking about, you know, we were very close friends and, and colleagues for, um, seven years. And I, I, you know, I was, deeply indebted to this person. And then over the last year, we've become, you know, totally estranged and are, you know, obviously no longer speaking. Um, Can you give a a reason why you think that happened? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I can't speak too much because there's some some legal stuff. But basically, yeah, uh, the the board of directors um, uh, terminated Dove as the CEO in June. um, And then there was a series of lawsuits and a hostile takeover. I was a consultant for the company for a little while um, during this transition. And I think that led to our split. I see. Because maybe you weren't necessarily on one side or the other. Yeah. And so you view yeah. that as a betrayal? Yes. Yes. So so when I think of American apparel marketing back then, um, I think of two things. One is kind of the obvious sort of made in America appeal to it. And then, but really the, the, the great thing about their marketing, and I wonder how much you were involved in this, were their amazing and crazy photographs, like on billboards, on stores, everywhere. Like, you know, almost to the point where 
people were practically accusing the company of like child abuse. Uh, uh, like what, what's the story behind the, the marketing campaigns of American apparel and, and where were you in that? Yeah. So, so Dove is a creative genius and there's, there's no argument about that. Even, I think even if his harshest critics have to acknowledge that he, um, not only built the brand, uh, not only, you know, built the manufacturing operation behind the brand, designed the clothes, but he also designed the aesthetic and the imagery and the branding. So as the marketing director or the marketing strategist, my job was to um, not like in a normal company, the marketing director might be the one who's who's choosing the photos or or who's, uh, you know, putting out casting calls or or um, designing the shoots. My job was to take these sort of raw, amazing images or ideas and positioning and spreading them so they could be as explosive as they were. So it's like, you know, we should do a campaign around X or here's where we would leak this campaign or what if we did, you know, this crazy thing. Um, and so I, it was a really cool company where you could take these ridiculous, uh, you know, some would say even reckless risks that paid off in terms of a massive, rapid, you know, international sort of infamy for the, the company and brand that far outpaced whatever it could have possibly, you know, paid for in any other way. What's an example of like an, the, the most outrageous thing you think you did there? I remember one time Dove was showing me these ads that or these photos he, he had taken or one of the other photographers had taken where it was it was Sasha Gray, the porn star. But before she was a particularly well-known porn star and definitely before she was a celebrity, and the only thing that she's wearing in the ad is socks. Like, she's standing there completely naked wearing socks. And I said, like, what if we just ran these as ads? Like, um, you know, you could never run a fully naked model in, like, a billboard or something because that's not allowed in America. But I was like, on a blog, like, they don't care. What if we just ran these, like, pornographic ads, essentially, all over the Internet? Um, and we ended up just, in, instead of doing it all over the Internet, on two websites, we paid $1,000 each to run these ads. Then I took screenshots of them and I sent them to Gawker and a handful of other websites. And it became this enormous campaign. Um, it made her really famous. It made the brand famous. And I, the entire campaign cost, you know, 2500 bucks, let's say. Um, and those ads still come up with, like, you Google the company. They're some of people's favorite ads. Um, you know, they, they got picked up in magazines. It got so much earned media that you would have thought it was a national campaign. In fact, it ran on two tiny websites and cost twenty five hundred bucks. It, it seems to me that, like, you know, you have a lot of skills, but in this one case, and I've seen you do this several times, your like superpower is to do meta campaigns. So you find a, a, a campaign or a topic with some interest. You know, obviously yeah. Sasha Gray, uh, Justin Socks is a creative idea, but then you create the meta campaign around the idea like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And then it blows up like on Gawker or, or you know, describe, I mean, I've seen you do it with Tucker. I've seen you do it with Tim Ferriss. Like describe the Tucker one that you did. Well, I'll, I'll give people, your listeners a better one. We sort of did this with your book, right? And, and again, yeah. it's, I'm not the one who's coming up with the ideas, but I can connect all the dots. Like, so your, Choose Yourself was coming out, Bitcoin was very new and in the news, and you came up with the idea to uh, accept Bitcoin for the book. And, you know, that was, that was like sort of two newsworthy things at the same time connected together, given to the right reporter, the right outlet, and all of a sudden it's getting coverage. Or we did another one with, with a musician client we work with called Young and Sick, where he released uh, his album on tour like T-O-R, the, the sort of the dark net right. uh, for the web. I, the business insider story about that, that stunt did a million pages. The actual album was downloaded like 10 times on tour, right? It, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, with the Bitcoin thing, I think I only sold like about a hundred via Bitcoin, sure. but but I went on CNBC because the claim was I was the best selling author ever uh, that was Bitcoin only at the time, and because yeah. I released it on Bitcoin before I released it on Amazon, and on CNBC that they asked me, did you just do this for the marketing? And I said, well, look where I am right now. I'm on national TV, <laughs> so right. it worked. 
Totally works. Describe uh, the Tucker one. And you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, the Planned Parenthood one? Yeah. Okay, so for, for Tucker's, uh, I guess it was his last book, um, there's this line in the book, and again, I didn't say it, he did. He says, you know, I've paid for so many girls to get an abortion, they should name a Planned Parenthood clinic after me. And so I, I obviously, when I was reading the book to give notes on it, um, because we were friends, um, that line stood out to me. And when we were talking about marketing ideas for the book, I was like, you know, it would be crazy. Um, and we were just joking around. Um, I was like, you know, it would be crazy. What if you name, what if you paid to name a pan, Planned Parenthood clinic after you? Like, what could that possibly cost? Right. Because they have all these local branches. What could that possibly cost? And like, he was like, holy shit, like, I should totally do that. He'd made a bunch of money in the market that year, and he, he needed to make a charitable donation. Um, and so he just sort of went from there. He ended up exploring the idea. It turned out it was a, it was about $250,000. Uh, it was two hundred fifty to $500,000. So we started exploring the talks. Originally, they're very interested in the idea. Then they sort of, they I think they talked to a lawyer or something, and the lawyer didn't like Tucker and, or, or, you know, some PR person didn't like Tucker. And they were like, sorry, we want nothing to do with you. Uh, go away. And so that was like even better in my eyes. Like Tucker was a little upset for me. It was like, that was even better. Now we don't have to spend the money. And now the story is, you know, Planned Parenthood rejects a $500,000 donation. Um, and I ended up, I ended up writing the article myself for Forbes because I was a contributor there. Um, the thing blew up, uh, got so much attention. It was this massive discussion. PETA got involved. Like, PETA saw how popular it was, and they were like, we'll take your money instead. And then Tucker was like, um, no, I hate PETA. I would never give money to you. So it became this, from this joke, and then from, you know, the, the sort of uh, pursuit of it, ended up becoming, you know, one of the bigger stunts that I've ever done. Oh my gosh! And then with with Tim Ferriss, I don't know if this was you or not, but with the Four Hour Chef, there was the whole fuss about Barnes and Noble not taking his books. Yeah, I mean that was real, right? Bit or sorry, Barnes and Noble really didn't take his books, but that it was a it was a very deliberate discussion to sit down and say, okay, if that's how this is going to be played, what is our response? What's what's the sort of position? What is the what is the idea we're going to build this campaign around? And it, it became a sort of, you know, David versus Goliath thing um, that led to, you know, Tim being open to trying new things. And I connected him with the, the people that I knew at BitTorrent, um, who I'd known for a long time, actually, since I'd, since I'd been in Hollywood. And they came up with this, you know, amazing BitTorrent bundle. It was one of the first ones that had ever been tried on that platform. And the book ended up doing really, really well. Well, and what's amazing about that, because so 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 that story I heard about and I knew about. But the reality is uh, Barnes and Noble wasn't accepting any books published by Amazon, not just Tim's, sure. but all of them. But right. you you guys were the ones who actually made a marketing campaign around that rejection. Well, to be fair, his was the book that was his was one, the most prominent book that they published to date. And two, it was the first one really coming after that decision so and, and it affected him in a very real way because all of his fans couldn't buy the book so it was really a decision yes yes we certainly lean i what you would say is we leaned into the problem rather than running away from it right right so okay so then after all of this kind of you were you were sort of uh, you, you 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 know then you wrote your your first book uh, Trust Me yeah. I'm Lying which is an excellent book about kind of these stories or this this sort of approach to marketing uh, yeah. I you know and we've discussed this before like horrible title because you're not really lying in any of these stories they're all truthful stories right. but it's a way to make a meta campaign sure. that's more powerful but so now now what now it seems like you've kind of glommed together everything you do and you've made uh an agent your own agency or company around this yeah so i have a company it's called brass check that is a marketing agency so it's sort of a uh, i would say it's a, a marketing and strategy firm so we advise clients we don't do a ton of execution it's mostly like the sort of here's what you should do or here's how we would do it um, we prefer to sort of give advice. Um, and then, uh, we, we, 
I, I sort of see us in the book space as being sort of like producers of books. So um, like we're, we're ghostwriting a number of books right now. We're helping authors who have ideas for books, how to develop that into a book, into a proposal. Then we broker the relationships, the book gets sold, then we help them make that book, then we might help them market it as well. So it's sort of like, I mean, the thing they all have in common is people have ideas that they want to get out into the world. What's the best way to get that out there and spread it as widely as possible? And we're sort of experts in in that domain. What are, what are the mistakes that many authors or even entrepreneurs make when marketing their books or products? Sure. Uh, most of the time they write the book first before they talk to anyone who knows what they're doing. It'd be like, you're an investor, right? If someone came to you and you're like, I already made this company, I've already spent tons of money on it, and uh, now I want your help, you'd be like, it's too late. You already doubled down on a really bad idea. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it, it's funny because you know, 85% of all businesses fail, but uh, a good statistic to know is, is that if you're profitable, meaning if you have a customer when you start your business... Yeah. Uh, then the odds go down to about 20%. Oh, wow. That's yeah. A, yeah, that's a great step. Yeah, so it's like people don't do the work beforehand because they get so caught up in like their love for their own creativity and ideas, and um, they really set themselves up to fail. I think that's a big one. I, I tend to see a lot of sort of ego in the book space where – you know, people have totally overestimated the size of their audience. They've overestimated the quality of their idea. You know, they've overestimated how good they are at marketing. A lot of these things are probably the biggest mistakes I see in the book space. What about what about on the writing side? Like, what are kind of, you know, mistakes you see people make when, when writing their book or expressing um, their ideas, expressing a vision? Yeah, so... Um, they can't, I, I have two rules um, when I'm thinking about a book. One is, um, who am I writing this for and how will it reach them? And though you have to answer those questions. And so I think a lot of times people's answer to that first question is, oh, this is a book for me. That's usually like a bad idea. Like they don't, they didn't write it thinking about who the potential audience is. And I mean that literally, like they couldn't describe the reader to you. And so it ends up appealing to basically no one. But like, let's take uh, as an example that Howard Hughes book. Yeah. Uh, if I were to, if I was the writer of that, I would say, okay, this is for all the Howard Hughes fans who have misconceptions about what a business genius he was. Is that a huge audience? Well, I mean, that book is written by two Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists about a famous person with a very large public profile. So it's like their thinking is. Okay, this book is for, you know, people who have heard of Howard Hughes, um, people who are not fans of Howard Hughes, or this is for people who are looking for a book about Howard Hughes. And we know that because of, to answer the second question, we know because of his celebrity, the fact that we have written a very counterintuitive or surprising take on this person, we're going to generate a lot of media attention and discussion that's going to allow this book to develop an audience. If you were writing, like, if I was to write that same book right now, it wouldn't do well because somebody had already written that book and the media wouldn't want to cover it a second time. You know, I guess the same two questions, I know you don't deal with fiction pretty much at all, but the same two qu uh, questions can apply for fiction. Oh, I, I totally think so. And and for fiction, it's it's much more about, okay, like, what is what is... I think what you're saying with fiction is, you know, why is this a book that people are going to like and and that's like sort of new and really good? And then two, who are the fans that I'm going to get this book to? Because that's what so many fiction authors mis make a mistake on, especially traditional, traditionally published authors, is they think the publisher can just magically make a book popular. And that's incredibly hard. So it's like, who are the first thousand readers of this book? If you don't have an answer, you should not publish. Yeah, that's interesting. And that kind of goes along with uh, Kevin Kelly's notion of a thousand true fans. Like you have to sort of make sure you have your thousand that are going to buy what you produce. Yeah, like so my first book was about media and I didn't have a huge platform when I wrote it. 
But I had an email list of 5,000 people who I gave book recommendations to every month. And I still do all these years later. It's now much, much bigger. But like I'd start, I knew one day I would write a book and I didn't know what it would be about. But I wanted to create a list of people who I knew liked books that I could recommend my own book to. And like as a fiction author, you got to think about the same thing. It's like you, James Altucher, you could write a fiction book. You could publish fiction right now even though you have no experience doing so. And it would, if it was good, it would be a success because it's going to sell at least a thousand copies from your true fans. And if they like it, it will spread from there. And that's very different than, you know, somebody else who's not put in that time and work. And, you know, you bring up the email list and I think that's so important because look, I know you, you write blogs too, and your blogs are always incredibly valuable. Like, it seems like you really take time, you research something very thoroughly, kind of probably what you did for Robert Greene, but now you're doing yeah. it for your blog. So I always appreciate your blog. But what I always look forward to is your reading list of, of book recommendations. And I think for someone who's kind of uh, I, I always use the the example, and it's a maybe it's a bad example, but for someone who's kind of stuck in life and trying to figure out, well, where should I go with my career? Or I don't really like looking for, working for a big corporation, or I'm not really getting, I'm not really doing what I love. I always think building an email list off of your interests is a powerful idea. And how did you start building this list before you had any other kind of platform? So I had a very small blog, and I said, look. Uh, instead of posting about books that I'm reading, which, you know, I have no power over how they do, I'm going to, I'm going to say, if you want book recommendations for me, sign up for this email list. And at first it was just email me your email and then I'll send it to you directly. And once a month I would copy and paste all those names into Gmail and send them. And it started with like a hundred people. It's now 40,000 people. But the idea, it's like every time I send it out, you email me and you're like, I like that book. Have you read this book? And like you and I have a quick conversation about it. It was that conversation that motivated me to start the thing originally. I wanted to talk to smart people about books I liked with the idea that I would do it totally for free. And then one day I would, I would monetize the list by being able to promote my own book in it. And that's exactly what I did. The, the list was enough to put my first you know, my first book on the bestseller list. Yeah, because I bet you, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just ask you right out. Do more people read your monthly email than go to your blog? Oh, yeah, way more. I, the list is like 40,000 people, and my average blog post isn't wouldn't be read 40,000 times for sure. And what people don't realize is like the blog, the, like I write for the New York Observer, I write for Thought Catalog, I write for the Next Web, a bunch of other sites. If you notice, my posts are filled with links or mentions of my list. The list has gotten significantly larger because of the articles that I've written. You know, you bring up another interesting point, and this is, again, related to that uh, surround sound marketing idea. I'm no longer a big believer of having a destination site like that has your own blog on it. And now you have a site. I have a site, jamesaltucher.com. You have ryanholiday.net. But... It's what goes – It's I like to put my articles everywhere. So LinkedIn, Thought Catalog, Forbes, Medium, you do a similar approach. I think that's really the way people should go if they have something to say. Go to uh, go to trusted sites rather than trying to make your own name a destination site. Well, so I got the idea from you because I – Oh, I, I didn't know that. I started reading your stuff. I forget where it was. And remember, we emailed all those years ago. And then I just saw your stuff just blow up and it was published in all these places. And I was like, he's, and I, I saw that I got the sense that the articles were doing better because they were published on prestigious names or brands in a way that the same article written on a personal blog might feel less significant. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, there's an experiment. I, I kind of base this off of a, an experiment that has nothing to do with blogging. But if you're advertising a product and you point people to your personal website to sell it, and with the other um, half of your ads, you point people to Amazon, you're 70% more likely to sell that product on Amazon because wow. Amazon's a trusted site. Even though sure. it's the same product, Amazon's a trusted site and your site isn't. So you feel like, oh, okay, there's something good, better about this product. No, no, that makes that makes total sense. And, and the way I see it is, 
I benefit from my ideas being ubiquitous and spread throughout sort of culture and the discussion much more than I benefit from page views on a website, which I don't monetize with ads or anything. Right. And so I see a lot of like you and I both know a lot of people who have much bigger lists than we do, who have much bigger websites than we do that um, outside of our circles, nobody has heard of. And if they wanted to publish a book, very few people outside those lists would buy because they've they're they're even though they're huge, they're insularly huge, and that's not that's not what motivates me, and not what um, makes me feel fulfilled or creative. And and you know the other the other side of that is it's not so hard to do this strategy of being everywhere because everyone sure. needs content. Like you write for yeah. Thought Catalog and Beta Beat, for instance. If if a listener came up with like five or ten decent ideas for articles. Both those sites will take at least one of those articles. Yeah, Thought Catalog is like, they love good stuff. And I'm an editor for The Observer now. If someone sent me a great article idea, I'd be like, please, can I have this? And I, we would publish it. Yeah, no, I, I even, um, you know, there's many cases where some sites will reach out to me and said, hey, can we republish this? Because yep. they're look they're looking for content. So many people are afraid to write because they feel like, oh, they're going to reject me or I won't be chosen. But you really have to kind of just go out there and sh- share your stuff because the, the editors like you want to see good material. Yeah, totally. Look, there, no editor has ever said we have too much good content or we have too much traffic we don't need anymore. Yeah, that's a really good point. That reminds me, I forgot who told me this quote, but um, Jeff, somebody told me about Jeff Bezos. He doesn't yeah. ask what new things do customers want. He asks what old things are always going to be true about customers. So customers are always going to want cheap shipping. <laughs> like sure. that that will never, ever change. They'll never suddenly say we want expensive sh- uh, shipping. Yeah, so, right. so these are sort of like easy problems to solve, like or at least easy answers to come up with. So, he's, so he focuses his entire business around kind of focusing on these easy answers as opposed to trying to solve difficult problems. But that's like the Warren Buffett strategy, right? He's like, people are always going to want a dilly bar and a Coke. I don't know if they're always going to want this computer or that MP3 player or, you know, this technology service. And so you may, you might miss out on some new things, but you you never take huge risks that totally fail. So so how's it going with the agency overall? Like what's what's going on? Is it expanding? Is it growing? Yeah, I mean it's it's going very well. We're working on on a ton of books and, and projects that we're really excited about. We in in March, one week in March, we had five books on the New York Times bestseller list, which was pretty cool. You're kidding? What, what, so I know Nicole Lapin, who, who's been on this podcast yep. as well. I know her book, uh, Rich Bitch. Uh, you helped her get that onto the New York Times bestseller list. What other books? So in in that week, there was uh, Nicole. There was uh, um, Bonnie Hari, um, who wrote. Oh, oh um, I did. I she. I, did. You, you probably introduced me. Uh, we, she's did. been on the podcast as well. And then we had um, we had uh, Nomadic Matt, who wrote How to Travel the World on Fifty Dollars a Day. Um, we Great had, stuff. Yeah, we had we had Tony Robbins' book Money, um, and then we had um, Stephen Kotler's book with Peter Diamandis. Hey, so all of those guys have been on my podcast, and I'm trying to what think. Do you know? Did you introduce me to every single one of them? Of course. I'm trying to think. I maybe I I knew Matt. You introduced me to Nicole, so that that that's oh. the only one that went the other way. Okay, yeah, yeah, but you got you introduced me to Tony Robbins. You introduced me to I, I think Matt. We might have met at the same time. Yeah. Um, I introduced you to Nicole. You introduced me to Vani Hari. Um, well, what what who's coming out soon? Who's next on your list? Um, who else do we have coming Oh, and you introduced me to Stephen Kotler. Oh, I have someone you're going to love, by the way. Robert Curson. He wrote this book called Pirate, uh, Pirate Hunters. Have you read, um, what's his famous book? I'm totally, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Um, uh, the, the one about the, the, the Nazi submarine, um, uh, off the coast of New Jersey. Can't believe I'm blanking. I feel so terrible. Uh, don't feel terrible. It happens to me all the time. I'm looking it up. Shadow Divers? Yes, Shadow Divers. It's one of my favorite books that I've ever read. Um, he's 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 Ken Kirsten's brother. Oh, perfect. And Ken Kirsten's been on this podcast. Wait, yes. th- 
Uh, oh, yeah, you introduced me to Ken Kirsten. I thought maybe it was the other way around in that case, but... No, no, no. no. But, yeah, so you, you'll have to have Robert on. So that book's coming out in June. I'm super excited about it. What's it I about? Mean, Sh- Shadow Divers sold, like, a million copies. This is this is a book about finding uh, the pirate Baron's, uh, uh, Bannister's pirate ship off the in the Caribbean. It's, like, the second pirate ship that's ever been found, ever. And, um, did, and it's, did he it's make... Found by, what? Did, did the did the finder make money? Like, were there was there you know the the mythical treasure on a pirate ship? Well, I don't want to give up the ending. So, okay. um, but but yes, they're searching for one of the the largest treasure treasures ever found, one of the most notorious pirates ever found, um, and it's it's uh it's an amazing book, and it's it's got John Chatterton in it again, who's the same uh the same like deep sea diver as the one that found the Nazi submarine. So let me ask you this. When a guy like Robert Curson sells a million copies of his book, um, I have two questions about that. One is, does that make him rich all of a sudden? Like, oh, I sold a million copies of my book. Now I'm set for life. Or is there? It, it can. I mean, let's say it depends on, you know, how much it's sold in hardcover versus paperback versus, uh, you know, ebook. Although, yeah, this one's definitely an ebook. But um, let's. You know, let's say the 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 average royalty is a dollar fifty. Um, you know, between hardcover and paperback, it, it's pretty good money. It 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 depends on whether it's going to keep selling. You know, if a book sells a million copies ten years ago and then never sells another copy, that's a million dollars. Um, you know, if that book continues to sell, you know, five hundred copies a week for the next you know twenty years, that's a lot of money as well. So, and then the other question is. Do you think the age of kind of the Tim Ferriss slash Tucker Max slash Freakonomics, we sold, you know, two million copies of our books. Do you think that age is starting to go away because there are so many more books being published and so many more, um, you know, uh, recipients of our attention between, you know, blogs and, and shows and movie and so on? Like, I don't. I don't think so. I think it. It actually has the opposite. Like Tyler Cowen talks about average being over. I think you're. I think what you actually see in publishing is historically there were a lot of people you'd never heard of that made decent money selling a decent number of books. Now I think you know the best selling book last year was The Fault in Our Stars from uh, was John Green. John, John Green. That book sold 10 million copies last year. Oh my gosh! I didn't know that. Yeah, ten, it, it sold so many copies that Penguin Random House gave every employee in the company like a $1,000 bonus. You know, and it's so funny. I just read, actually, that uh, I went to summer camp with him. I didn't know really? that. Just, just a trivia fact. But uh, but anyway, it's like my daughter's favorite book was The Fault in Our Stars. Yeah, I mean, that, that guy's a machine right now. Yeah, and I forget. I think it was um, Binky Urban, the, the literary agent, who told me more – uh, more books are getting million-dollar advances than ever before. Although, yeah. uh, at the same moment she told me that, Tina Brown was on the other side of me and said, "Don't believe anything she says." So, well, I, I think I think what you're seeing is certain people are getting huge advances. Other people who have perfectly good, potentially successful projects are getting nothing. Those people are having to self-publish. They might sell fewer copies but make more money. So I think the market is sort of going in two opposite directions. So so it's almost like, you know, there's Chris Anderson's famous long tail where yeah. some books will sell a lot and then there's a middle part where a good number of people will make a living and then there's a long tail where, you know, millions of people will sell five copies a week. But are right. you saying the middle part of the tail is kind of disappearing a little bit? I think so, and I think the middle part of the tale is is disappearing from traditional publishing. Like, like if you'd published Choose Yourself with Simon and Schuster, that would have been considered a really big, like a, a solid hit for them. Like, you know, they wouldn't be like you know flying you around the world in a private jet, but it, it would have been a huge source of revenue for them, right? Because it sold a good amount of copies. Um, you know, it, it 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 was it would have been cheap to acquire all these things, but. You know, they probably wouldn't have considered a book like that because it's like too motivational. They would have preferred something like cleaner. And so I think what they call like mid-list authors are the ones that are really struggling. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it holds true for fiction. But, you know, why don't you self-publish? Because 
it seems like you would really benefit from self-publishing because you can have much more control over your marketing, your pricing, the way you bundle uh, a book on email lists. Like I, my most effective way, like I just published another book, Choose Yourself Guide yeah. to Wealth. And I've sold through email lists, not through Amazon, but through email lists. I've sold, you know, just in the past three or four weeks, 40,000 issues of that through email. And because I can control the marketing in a way that a publisher can't. And then, of course, on Amazon, I sell a bunch. Why don't you self-publish? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little jealous to hear that. I think that that's obviously those are very impressive numbers. Two things. One, I think it goes back to the sort of the publishing strategy we were talking earlier. I'm I still feel that I'm very early in my career and it's more beneficial to me to be associated with you know, uh, a prestigious publishing house to have access to the things that they have access to, um, for the book to be perceived the way that it is, to learn as much as I can about the industry, um, to get better as a writer, you know, with their help, to, to sort of let some of the constraints of the industry make me better and smarter. Um, and, uh, you know, also I'm, I would prefer that the book be Again, like I want the book to be read by the right people rather than just raw numbers right now. Right. Um, and I, I can always change that strategy down the road, but I'm not, what I'm not doing is what too many traditionally published authors uh, do is go, oh, I would never self publish. I'm not one of those people. I don't need to do what they're doing. I have a big platform or a, a big enough platform for me, and I'm building the tools for it that were I to change my mind, in five years or 10 years, I have the ability to do so. I wouldn't be like learning a new language. Well, you told, when I did choose yourself, which is by far my most successful book, you told me, I was asking you lots of questions and you told me I can go for one of three things. And if you get other of these three things, it's great, but you could really only aim for one. And, and the first one was number of copies sold. The second thing was you could aim to be on like the New York Times bestseller list. Or the yeah. third thing was you could aim for money, but it's kind of yeah. hard to get two or three out of three of those. Yeah. And so, so like this choose yourself guide to wealth, I had to specifically give up, uh, uh, you know, award lists like the bestseller list because email nobody tracks email you know books you sell through email lists um and i i kind of actually probably had to give up numbers because i priced very high through the email lists but you know i might but but because i self-published i'm in charge of my marketing so at some point i'll bring down the price and focus more on numbers totally and look you're seeing a lot of of uh, originally self-published books now get acquired by traditional publishers. So the the market's changing all the time. I think you just got to be smart about what you're doing. Well, Fifty Shades of Grey was self-published and then picked up. Uh, and The Martian by Andy Weir. I don't know if you've read that. Uh, no. Oh, you would like that book. Uh, uh, that was originally self-published. Now Ridley Scott's doing the movie on it. It's, 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 it's mainstream published, I think, by Random House Penguin. Um, but it was originally self-published and sold a few hundred thousand copies that way. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, well, Ryan, this has been really great and educational. I'm glad you came back on the podcast. And uh, uh, is there anything you're working on right now that I can kind of uh, give a plug for? Well, I will say everyone should sign up for your email list. Oh, thank you. And uh, uh, where can I find it? Yeah, so it's just ryanholiday.net, and the, like a thing pops up at the top. You can subscribe to it there. Hey, can I say something? Yeah. You are so much better at this than the first time we did it. And I don't mean that in a condescending way, but like you've really become like an amazing interviewer. Like I don't think I've talked about a lot of these things before. Oh, well, I really appreciate it. This is high praise coming from uh, an expert on marketing. So uh, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, it's your it's mastery, right? You How many of these have you done now? Well, I've probably done I've probably done about 150 to 200 of these overall. Like I have a lot in the can, and yeah. then I also do the Ask Altitude podcast with Claudia, which right. is like some of those are interviews, and so maybe another hundred more from those. So it does get to it. It does get to add up. 
Yeah, I think you're seeing podcasts get a lot better across the board because of like people are putting in the hours. I think also there's a lot more. There are many more podcasts, so the competition is tough. Like if you want to have an audience, you can't just. Be, it's not the Wild West anymore. Like this is a, a almost semi-professional format at this point. Yeah, totally, totally. So, well, again, Ryan, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you on the show again. This is great. I, w- I, w- I would love that, and uh, we'll-, we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye, Ryan. Thanks. Right, bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amic slash you know.